0: Hey, this is Desi. We're off today. So please enjoy this encore presentation of the broadcast that originally aired on June 15th, 2021.
1: We have now an enormous task ahead to move forward as a country, to punish the perpetrators, to do everything possible to prevent similar attacks and to do so in a manner that affirms the values on which our justice system is founded and upon which our
2: democracy depends. Sounds good to me, Merrick Garland. How about to you? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why? I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck oh. in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in sweltering Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on some fine streaming affiliates like the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling, I hope, edition of the Bradcast. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Tuesday said he is considering whether to recommend a new criminal statute to prosecute domestic terrorists. Yes, we got a whole bunch of statutes to Prosecute foreign terrorism, Desi Doyen, but when it comes to domestic terrorism...
0: Not so much. Not so much. Kind of a big blind spot there.
2: That, among other tactics that he pledged to use to combat the growing threat of domestic extremist violence, as the FBI has seen this year an increase in the number of open domestic terrorism cases... Citing the department's ongoing investigation into the January 6 riot at the U.S. Capitol, Garland pledged during remarks at the DOJ on Tuesday that the department would pursue domestic extremists with the same, quote, resolve and dedication used to pursue those folks on January 6 and used to pursue foreign terrorists. That, as he announced the Biden administration plans to enhance its analysis of threats from domestic terrorists as part of a nationwide strategy.
1: The Justice Department remains acutely aware of the continuing threat posed by international terrorist organizations. We will never take our eyes off the risk of another devastating attack by foreign terrorists. At the same time, we must respond to domestic terrorism with the same sense of purpose and dedication. Attacks by domestic terrorists are not just attacks on their immediate victims, they are attacks on all of us collectively, aimed at rending the fabric of our democratic society and driving us apart. According to an unclassified summary of the March Intelligence Assessment, The two most lethal elements of the domestic violence extremist threat are racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists. In the FBI's view, the top domestic violent extremist threat comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the
2: superiority of the white race. Oh, I can hear the heads exploding already at Fox News. But meanwhile, here in the real world, yeah, these are attacks on all of us collectively aimed at rending the fabric of our democratic society and driving us apart. That, according to the new attorney general on Tuesday. That's what he said before going on to add, as you heard at the top of the show, citing the January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol by Trump incited largely white domestic terrorists that, quote, we have an enormous task ahead to move forward as a country, to punish the perpetrators, to do everything possible to prevent similar attacks and to do so in a manner that affirms the values on which our justice system is founded and upon which democracy depends Garland's remarks on domestic terrorism on Tuesday followed on his vow on Friday to also expand enforcement of voting rights by, among other things, doubling the number of attorneys currently working to protect federal voting rights law, even as GOP controlled states around the country continue to expand voter suppression measures at the state level. So that's good. He gets it. He appears to understand the threats to democracy in both attacks on voting and via domestic terrorism. And I'm happy that he's speaking up loudly about both. Unfortunately, those are not the only threats that this nation currently faces when it comes to the, quote, attacks on all of us collectively aimed at rending the fabric of our democratic society, which we must address to move forward as a country. By punishing the perpetrators to do everything possible to prevent similar attacks in a manner that affirms the values on which our justice system is founded and upon which democracy depends. Yeah, I wouldn't blame you if you're having trouble keeping up with it all because so am I. Pretty much every single day now, we're learning something new and wildly disturbing about how Donald Trump's administration abused the nation's justice system to serve his own personal interests in one corrupt or at least questionable and almost always unprecedented scheme or another meant to service his personal or political interests rather than the country's and rather than democracies. Today's example is just the latest that comes from Kate Benner at the New York Times on Tuesday morning. New emails obtained from the Department of Justice by the House Oversight Committee show how former President Donald Trump ran a pressure campaign on the eventual replacement to then-Attorney General Bill Barr in December after the November election, hoping to push the new top official at DOJ, Barr's replacement, acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen, to boost his false claims of election fraud. The New York Times first reported that Trump sent an email via his assistant to Rosen before he was even officially in the job of acting AG, containing documents which he said showed evidence of election fraud in Michigan, even after similar claims had already been tossed out by a federal judge just a week earlier in a lawsuit filed by one of Trump's personal attorneys. Two weeks later, Trump followed up with another email through an assistant that included a draft of a brief written by a private attorney that Trump wanted the Justice Department to file to the Supreme Court on behalf of the United States government, arguing that state officials in Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada and Pennsylvania, all states, by the way, that Trump lost last last November, had used the pandemic as a, quote, excuse to unconstitutionally revise or violate their own election laws and weaken election security. Kurt Olson, a lawyer who advised Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, an indicted uh, felon himself, uh, his lawsuit was rejected by the high court earlier that month. Well, Olson prodded Acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall about meeting with Acting Attorney General Rosen about the brief, which he said was modeled after the Texas action. Yes, the one that had been tossed by the Supreme Court. This is the one that Donald Trump wanted the DOJ to resubmit under the name of the United States government. Rosen, to his credit, I believe, in avoided the entreaties by Olson and the White House itself, as, at least as far as we know. The DOJ indicated there could be other emails that were not turned over to the House Oversight Committee that might have been withheld under certain executive privilege claims. The efforts from Trump and his allies to pressure the incoming acting attorney general arrived in Rosen's inbox around the same time that Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was asking Rosen to examine a number of unfounded conspiracy theories about the election, including one particularly insane one, one that I heard a whole bunch of about in my own email inbox around the same time, despite the lack of any actual evidence to actually demonstrate any of it actually happened or even could have happened. Regarding claims about people in Italy using military technology and satellites to somehow remotely switch votes for Trump to votes for Joe Biden, Yes, all of the insane stuff that you may have heard about on Facebook and Twitter around that time regarding absolutely insane or at least evidence free claims that millions of computerized tabulations were somehow changed from Biden to Trump or from Trump to Biden were actually being pushed by the White House itself on the Department of Justice with demands that they make legal filings to give these almost entirely evidence-free claims the official seal of approval by the once-respected U.S. Department of Justice. It was these sort of claims, apparently, that were even too insane for the wildly corrupt Bill Barr to get behind with a straight face, leading to his removal after conceding that the DOJ had seen no evidence of fraud that could have changed the results of the 2020 election. Of course, that scoop today from The New York Times is just the latest. It comes on the heels of revelations late last week that the DOJ in what seems to be another unprecedented move secretly subpoenaed the phone, email and text message records of U.S. House Judiciary Democrats, Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell way back in 2018, Which seems to me to be an unprecedented violation of constitutional separation of powers and at a time when the very same time that the Trump administration and its DOJ were rejecting lawful congressional subpoenas for documents and testimony by executive branch officials on the premise that the legislative branch was, yes, Violating constitutional separation of powers rights between the two co-equal branches of government. But those are just two of the latest disturbing revelations. There have been many more since Trump left office and, of course, many more even while he was still in office stonewalled by the administration under those same separation of powers claims. And of course, as anyone paying attention knows, there is likely to be much more still forthcoming that we don't yet even know about. In the meantime, President Biden's attorney general, Merrick Garland, certainly has his hands full bringing justice to members of the MAGA mob. Incited by Donald Trump to attack the Capitol on January 6th, even as Garland vowed on Friday to double the department's efforts to fight new voter suppression tactics being adopted by Republican states. And today he vowed to expand the DOJ's focus on ongoing domestic terror threats, which continue to grow across the country. All of that is more Way more than enough for any attorney general to have to deal with, much less needing or wanting to, as they say, look back at what came before him. But look back, he must, at least in my opinion. Otherwise, he can look forward to all of the DOJ corruption of the Trump years repeating itself the next time that a Republican finds his or her way into the White House. In February... Just after Joe Biden took office, a group of more than a dozen progressive, nonprofit, good government watchdog groups led by our friends at freespeechforpeople.org penned a letter to then incoming Attorney General Garland calling on him to convene a a task force specifically meant to root out the mountain of corruption from the Trump years. The letter begins, we write to urge you to commit publicly to establishing within the Department of Justice immediately upon your confirmation an independent task force to investigate any potential federal criminal or civil violations that may have been committed by former President Trump, members of his administration or his campaign, business or other associates. For at least the past five years, they write, Donald Trump and his aides and associates have engaged in a flurry of unethical, unconstitutional and often criminal activity culminating on January 6, 2021, with the seditious insurrection on the United States Capitol incited and encouraged by former President Trump and his allies. If we are to begin the process of restoring the integrity of the Department of Justice and the rule of law to our nation, they write, it is essential that the Department thoroughly investigate these actions and, where warranted and appropriate, hold accountable those who have violated the nation's laws. The group goes on, uh, the several groups go on to list at least five areas they suggest the task force focus on. That task force, however, has yet to be convened. Whether the groups received an answer to their letter to Garland, well, we'll find that out momentarily. But today at Washington Monthly, law professor and free speech for people board member Jennifer Taub added to Garland's headache, writing an article asking, why is Merrick Garland defending Bill Barr's policies? In which she argues, quote, this is Merrick Garland's Tylenol moment. And by which I mean he has more than a headache, but a poisoning on his hands. Both his legacy and our trust that no one is above the law in America are in peril. Joining us now to discuss all of this peril, sadly, it's only a one-hour show, is our longtime uh, friend and constitutional attorney and voting rights champion, now co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org, Yes, our friend John Bonifaz. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Counselor, great to have you here.
3: Thank you, Brad, for having me back. Great to be with you.
2: Apologies for that long introduction, John, but, well, trust me, it could have been much longer
3: uh, now you covered it. That was great.
2: <laughs> uh, you know, first, have you received any response from uh, from Merrick Garland or the DOJ itself regarding your call for this uh, Trump DOJ task force? Which I notice you tend to re- renew this call on Twitter pretty much every time some new shoe drops in this mess, which is kind of like every day th- uh, at this point. Right.
3: It, it will it will be renewed every time it's necessary, and in fact, we have not yet received a response. And while we're waiting for that response, more and more people all across the country are joining this call. We now have over 200,000 people across the nation who have signed on to this call, and and that can be found on our blog at freespeechforpeople.org for people people to join uh, this call in the DOJ. It's critical, as we state in the letter, for the integrity of the Justice Department and for the rule of law that this task force be created and that Trump and his associates be held accountable for all violations of federal law they have committed.
2: So why an independent task force stood up by the G- DOJ as you see it why is that the best way to go versus a congressional committee or a presidential blue ribbon commission or an inspector general investigation as uh, uh, Garland has sought and is reportedly receiving after last week's revelations of the DOJ secretly obtaining personal records of democratic lawmakers and the media and so forth or or even a special counsel akin to Robert Mueller's why is why why are you focusing Focusing on a task force specifically, what would that bring us that these other groups could not or would not?
3: Well, first, on the question of congressional oversight or a commission that Congress might appoint or even the president might appoint, we're, we're all for that, but neither of those avenues deal with accountability under federal criminal law. Not Neither the Congress nor a presidential commission could engage in prosecuting any individuals, including the former president, for violations of federal criminal law. That can only be done by prosecutors Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Justice Department or in a U.S. attorney's office. The reason why we believe a task force is the best way to go over a special counsel is that we we do think uh, this should not be kind of assigned outside of the department to someone who then is seen as Robert Mueller was seen for, for some time during the Trump administration as the sole arbiter of this and in fact in many people's minds a savior who was gonna uncover everything and, and, and lead to accountability for Trump. We know that didn't happen. We know Bob Bill Barr himself undermined the report that Robert Mueller presented to Congress, but we also know that Robert Mueller held back on, on certain matters, including mm-hmm the decision not to prosecute uh, the president based on a a policy in the Department of Justice, which we disagree with, and many other scholars disagree with, that a sitting president cannot or should not uh, be prosecuted uh, while he's or she's in office, Mm -hmm. and that effectively means that a sitting president can be above the law during that time. That being said, Robert Mueller laid out very clearly in his report four separate incidents of obstruction of justice, where Donald Trump met all the elements for obstruction of justice, and the signal was very clear that once the president was out of office, uh, that he would be free to be prosecuted uh, for those crimes. Now, that's just one example of many, Mm -hmm. and you've cited others in your introduction as to why this task force needs to be uh, created, but there are multiple investigations that need to proceed and potentially multiple prosecutions that need to proceed. Uh, and it would be an outrage for this administration to claim it's going to turn the page. It's not going to conduct that kind of accountability for those who have engaged in such lawless behavior in the last administration. That That's what happens you know, on the road to tyranny. Mm. But if we're to protect our democracy and our constitution it's critical that we hold donald trump and his associates accountable for the violations of federal criminal law they may have committed
2: so this task force then would be built uh, uh, created by prosecutors presumably those already in the the doj unlike bringing someone in as a special counsel like robert Mueller. so these would pe- be people that are Sort of already in place and 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 tasked to focus solely on Donald Trump-related crimes. Essentially, is that it, would would that be their mandate? And is there is there yes. precedent for this?
3: Well, it would be their mandate. There's I, I don't think there's precedent for this kind of task force and the multitude of investigations that needs to take place because there's not a precedent for this kind of former presidency, uh, but. The reality here is that there are a lot of people in the Justice Department who were engaged uh, in prior investigations that got shut down. For example, in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, those prosecutors put Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer, in jail mm-hmm. for a conspiracy to violate federal, criminal, federal campaign finance law and to defraud the United States via those hush money payments. Named as Individual 1, uh, in that indictment against Michael Cohen mm-hmm. uh, was none other than Michael was Donald Trump. Now, mm-hmm. individual one was not actually, his name wasn't put in there, but individual one everybody knows was Donald Trump. He was the leader of that conspiracy, and yet Bill Barr shut down that investigation. It has no longer been uh, continued uh, in the Southern District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office there. And that's one example where you have a lot of knowledge already built up among the prosecutors who prosecuted Michael Cohen and they and they named that individual one in the indictment and they should proceed uh, with that case. And I will say there may be statute of limitations issues mm-hmm. associated uh, with that case that need to be addressed uh, as early as August. So it's critical that this move forward. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think that a task force will signal to the country that Merrick Garland, Department of Justice are serious about this. They recognize the massive scope of these investigations that's critical, starting with the incitement of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. uh, And they're not going to leave any stone unturned. Right now, I fear that that's not the message being sent. In fact, I fear it's the opposite, that they're going to turn a page, that they're going to do what President Obama said when he came in the office, that he was going to look forward, not backward, not prosecute any member of the Bush administration for war crimes or torture Mm -hmm. they committed or oversaw, not prosecute the bankers for the financial crisis that led us to in 2008 to that crisis. If that's the message that effectively is being sent to the nation, then as you say in your introduction, we're going to set ourselves up for even far worse Dangers with a with a new potential administration down the road, where somebody looks at this and figures I can get away with even much more. And we know that Donald Trump got away uh, with with matters that must be held accountable for.
2: Uh, two points that uh, that that come from those thoughts. Uh, one, and and I, and I think you 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 may have already answered this, but uh, case investigations, probes, and so forth that were shut down by Bill Barr, presuming the statute of limitations hasn't run out. There is nothing that prevents the DOJ from reopening any particular cases, right? Uh, be- being shut yeah. down by the attorney general doesn't, is not a legal thing. doesn't mean they have to stay shut down, correct?
3: That's absolutely right. And, and there's no reason why they should follow what Bill Barr and, and his Justice Department decided, because we know that Bill Barr was effectively a, a, a lackey for the president mm-hmm. in so many ways uh, and, and was not credible.
2: the way he ran the Justice Department. And uh, the other point that occurs to me is, you know, the the DOJ's top national security attorney uh, just announced that he'll be resigning. Uh, He was a, a, a Trump appointee. Uh, he would have known about the subpoena and the, the the secret subpoenas of the Democratic lawmakers and so forth but he was still there you know he is still there now I think he's he's resigning I think next week or, or July or something like that I'm very concerned John Boniface about the number of Trumpers uh, who may still be burrowed in at the DOJ and if you're talking about a task force made of Department of Justice officials well um, you know am I right to be concerned about, about this and about the Trumpers who are still there? And if so, what can and or should be done about that?
3: Well, I think you're raising a very critical point, which is in addition to setting up this task force, particularly with these revelations of these subpoenas that were issued and the effort to effectively try to find information unlawfully of the journalists and of members of Congress, with these investigations brought about by probably donald trump himself but also the the department of justice under the trump administration in addition all that we we now know uh... that this proceeded into this current administration new york times has reported that cnn lawyers were working you know to try to negotiate a deal uh, with the department of justice and that deal was not actually formally negotiated until after the inauguration of Joe Biden on January mm. 26, and the government only recently lifted the gag order uh, in that deal. Uh, similarly, the New York Times ha- had a similar fight with a gag order imposed mm-hmm. in March of this year. So why is the Biden Justice Department continuing the work of the Bar Justice Department yeah. with respect to, to these kinds of attacks on freedom of the press and, and uh, on, on, you know, potentially, we don't know yet, but mm-hmm. potentially a uh, continuation of surveillance of members of Congress. Now, we're told that that's been ended, uh, but I, I think it's a serious concern, and it means that anyone in the, in the Justice Department who was party to that, who was involved in that kind of surveillance, should be immediately removed. They should not remain in the Justice Department. They can say, well, I was a career attorney, I was just carrying out orders, but we know that when you're presented with an unlawful order, you should not be carrying that out. And these were raising serious, as you highlight, serious breaches of separation of powers, uh, serious breaches, frankly, of privacy rights of those who who were the subject of this surveillance. And, and And I think those members of the Justice Department who participated in that should no longer be there.
2: Well, and, of course, I agree with you, but it seems like the problem is even larger. As a uh, uh, law professor and Free Speech for People board member Jennifer Taub uh, pointed out in her piece at Washington Monthly today, the DOJ has been taking, you know, Donald Trump positions in a bunch of cases. One of them, the E. Jean Carroll case, where she says uh, Trump raped her about 20 years ago. He called her a liar. She's suing for defamation. But the Department of Justice, while Trump was in office, uh, was trying to substitute themselves as the defendant, the U.S., uh, you know, instead of Trump. That was rejected. That idea was just. Preposterous on its face, it seemed to me. A federal judge seemed to agree, but now it's Garland's Department of Justice that is appealing that decision, which kind of makes you, you know, wonder what the hell is going on here. Why is this going on? Are these, you know, Trump folks who are burrowed in, or is the, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm at a loss to even understand how that could even occur under Merrick Garland.
3: I, I agree. And, and of course, I agree with our board member Jennifer Taub and what she's written in that piece. She, she starts out in that piece talking about how she had great hope in Merrick Garland, but then she says that hope is fading. And these decisions, both to effectively continue to protect the Bar Justice Department in terms of what they did with the Mueller mm-hmm. report and their intervention to continue the intervention the Bar Justice Department started in the Eugene Carroll case, both of these decisions. Uh, were were clearly made with Garland's knowledge. He was uh, signing off on them. He even testified before Congress on this the other day, uh, arguing that you know precedent required it. Uh, but none of that is true, and it's very troubling uh, that essentially he's continuing the the bill bar policies, which are are policies that are run counter uh, to our Constitution and, and and to democracy. I mean. The notion that we're going to allow the Justice Department to continue to hide behind this false claim uh, that what was happening when Bill Barr was creating his summary of the Mueller report was deliberative and allowed to be concealed from the public is is just preposterous. What he was doing, we know, was essentially shilling for the President of the United States. He was engaged in a political uh, fiasco uh, to try to cover up what Bob Mueller was presenting in a 400-plus page report to mm-hmm. Congress. He didn't want to let that get out until he was recasting it in an untruthful way. And as for the E. Carroll case, the idea that what Trump said about E. Jean Carroll was in his capacity as President of the United States is also absurd. Yeah. I mean, you know, Donald Trump was responding as the alleged rapist that he was being charged with, not as... President of the United States in response to what Jean Carroll uh, had said, and, and she has every right to sue him for defamation, mm-hmm. and she should not be blocked because the Biden Justice Department is going to come through continuing what Bill Barr has said, that somehow the Donald Trump's immune yeah. because he was acting as President of the United States at the time he said these statements.
2: Well, that's that's what makes this just so uh, mind-boggling and you know makes you wonder, Is, uh, you know, are there still Trumpers there giving bad advice to Merrick Garland or, frankly, is Merrick Garland himself up for this task, John? I mean, listen, uh, this this would be uh, an an impossible mountain, it seems, for pretty much anyone, even if you had been named as attorney general at this point, John Bonifaz, which, by the way, I wish you had been. That said, you know, Merrick Garland, he was a centrist judge. He's not a political animal. Is is he up for this task? Uh, do, do we have any reason to believe he he is or isn't yet at this point?
3: I don't know. I, I honestly honestly do not know. I think the verdict is out, and I think it is very concerning this, what we've seen the actions thus far mm-hmm. uh, with that with those two cases and other matters. Uh, the the continuation of this surveillance that went on that we now know about into the Biden. Justice Department. All, all this is very concerning, and I and that's why I think we need to raise our voices and be clear that we will not accept a Justice Department that looks the other way, that does not hold Donald Trump and his associates accountable, and we certainly will not accept a Justice Department that continues the outrageous actions of the Bar Justice Department, mm-hmm. and that, uh, that's really why we're engaged in this campaign with a number of other groups calling for this task force, and urging people to join us. Uh, I think this is a moment for the Department of Justice, but also for democracy and our Constitution, and they need to get it right. Uh, So, you know, I I agree. I've Mm -hmm. got concerns, too, about the direction that the Department of Justice is going. I have concerns about uh, Merrick Garland and what he's up to, but I think the verdict is out.
2: This is uh, indeed a critical moment, and... um I, I take some comfort, at least, knowing uh, that, uh, John, that, that you and Free Speech for People.org and uh, these other groups that you're working with, uh, you know, are there to call him out, to call out Garland to uh, correct this ship if need be. John Bonifaz, let me. Uh, do you mind if I take a quick break here? I want to come back ask you very quickly about a new campaign that you guys uh, are running at Free Speech for People. That sort of goes a little bit back to uh, more back to your initial roots as as far as you know getting corporations out of our elections. Can you sit tight for one quick second, and I'll we'll we'll come back with uh, with a one one or two quick questions on that. Yes, absolutely. Much appreciated. John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org, is my guest. For a few minutes longer, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The broadcast. <laughs>
0: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
1: And the money kept rolling in from every side.
3: <laughs>
2: you go. That's from Evita. Uh-huh. And that smartly sets up uh, this segment with our friend John Bonifaz, getting back to one of the initial reasons for the formation of his nonprofit, nonpartisan watchdog, Free Speech for People, co-founded by my guest today, constitutional attorney John Bonifaz. Um, the group released this video this month calling for the passage of laws to keep money from rolling on in from foreign corporations into american elections
4: nearly half of americans believe our democracy is broken it's hard to blame them in 2010 the u.s supreme court's citizens united decision gave corporations the green light to spend unlimited money to influence federal state and even local elections. And that's what giant corporations have done, drowning out the voices of ordinary citizens. Whose money are these corporations spending? And whose interests are the executives looking out for? Many are substantially owned or influenced by foreign investors. The Saudi government can't spend money in US elections. That's illegal. But it can leverage its stake in American companies so that they do exactly that by proxy. In fact, 40% of corporate stock is owned by foreign investors. Whether those investors are Russian oligarchs, Canadian energy conglomerates, or European financiers, corporate decisions are increasingly influenced by these foreign concerns. And they are shaping the laws that we live by. That's a direct threat to our democratic self-government. But we can fix it. All across the country, the American people are fighting back. 73% of Americans, including majorities of both Democrats and Republicans, support limiting political spending by companies with any foreign ownership. Seven states are currently considering a ban on foreign-influenced corporate political spending, including New York. New York's Democracy Preservation Act would prevent some of the biggest multinational corporate political spenders from pouring money into New York state and municipal elections. By passing the Democracy Preservation Act, New York has the chance to rebuild trust in democracy. Learn more about these critical nationwide efforts to ban foreign-influenced corporate political spending at freespeechforpeople.org.
2: That was, uh, obviously, freespeechforpeople.org. And as the video explains, 73% of Americans, including majorities of both Democrats and Republicans, support limiting political spending by companies with any foreign ownership. Uh, you know, of course, I'm in favor of this. But, John Boniface, you know, uh, we, we think uh, we, you and I alike have been fighting to get corporations out of our elections. But now I'm realizing... These are corporations with a lot of foreign money, uh, you know, built, uh, owned by these companies. This seems even more outrageous, if that's possible. You know, given how you know popular the idea of getting corporations out of our elections, much less foreign corporations out, uh, do these laws that you're looking at passing around the country now uh, stand a chance of being passed by states like New York? And will they hold up against the Supreme Court and Citizens United?
3: Yes. So it, they do stand a very good chance of passing in a number of states. And New York State already has, Passed via their state senate, this model legislation is pending before the New York Assembly, and the special session that is undoubtedly going to happen in New York uh, this summer or this fall uh, will be another opportunity for the Assembly to take up uh, this model legislation. New York could become the first state in the country to enact this kind of law. Seattle was the first jurisdiction uh, to enact it in this way, with the thresholds as defined in the law, for foreign-influenced corporations of having 1% single stock ownership by a foreign investor or 5% in the aggregate. Uh, And this is a critical reform for dealing with the threat of multinational corporate spending in our elections. We know from the Citizens United ruling in January 2010, which was how we got started at Free Speech for People Mm to overturn that ruling and the doctrines underlying that ruling of corporations being treated as people and money equaling speech. Mm -hmm. We know from that ruling that it swept away a century of precedent barring corporate money in our elections. And vast majorities of the public support a constitutional amendment which we've advocated for along with many others to overturn that ruling. But while we're continuing that fight for a constitutional amendment to overturn the ruling, this kind of reform actually fits within the overall framework of what the Supreme Court has ruled. Because the Supreme Court, two years after Citizens United, in a case known as a v. FEC, mm-hmm. upheld the longstanding federal prohibition that foreign nationals have no role whatsoever in spending money indirectly or directly in our elections at the federal, state, and local level. It's the only federal campaign finance law that applies to state and local elections as well. Uh, and what has now happened is that as a result of This loophole created by Citizens United, foreign investors are now able to use the corporate form to subvert that very federal prohibition to get around it by trying to influence our elections via Mm -hmm. the corporate vehicle. So when you look at a company like Amazon, it has foreign ownership that passed these thresholds, and it would be barred. As it already is barred in Seattle, Mm -hmm. it would be barred in New York or elsewhere, whichever state's. Uh, pass this kind of law. And if it is coming before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will have to deal with its Blumen v. FEC ruling that makes clear that foreign investors have no role whatsoever in our elections.
2: The You know, I, I mean, isn't there foreign money, foreign investors in just about every corporation? And if that is the case... John Bonifaz, is this just a backdoor way to get corporations out of elections? And by the way, I'm not uh, criticizing that. I think it's brilliant, if so. But is that kind of what we're looking at in uh, in these states that are considering banning any corporations with uh, you know, any sort of substantive uh, uh, foreign investment in them?
3: Well, when we talk about the Fortune 500 companies, you're right. Because those companies are multinational. They, they're not beholden to any particular country, Uh, CEO of Exxon famously said, I'm not beholden to the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 98% of Fortune 500 companies would be covered under these thresholds. Nearly all of them are foreign-influenced. But the Supreme Court has to deal with the tension that's been created from its Citizens United ruling and its Blumen v. FEC ruling, because in Blumen v. FEC, the default position that they Mm -hmm. upheld is
0: 0%.
3: Mm -hmm. 0% of foreign national money in our elections is allowed. That's the default position. So we actually have a compromise with this bill. It's 1% for (laughs) single stock ownership and 5% in the aggregate. Arguably, it should be down to zero. But, you know, if you're a small mom-and-pop business, you're incorporated in some state, you likely are not having foreign investment mm. in your business, and you're not going to be prohibited by this law. That doesn't mean we shouldn't overturn Citizens United. Eventually we should, uh, but those corporations would not be impacted. But the Fortune 500 companies, absolutely, the vast majority of them are multinational their foreign influence and they should be barred from spending money in our
2: elections. I wish you guys luck with this campaign. I hope uh, to see it all over the country. Folks can support it of course at freespeechforpeople.org and and of course actions like this on a you know state by state level unfortunately are necessary because the federal government is so broke, uh broken in I should say, that it is unwilling or unable to institute safeguards uh, such as these to protect our democracy boy it'd be nice to see a a federal version of this bill but uh, if we have to go state by state I guess we will John Bonifaz is the co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org you can find them on the twitter at FSFP and of course you can find John there as well he is simply John Bonifaz John always appreciate uh, the work that you guys are doing always grateful when you join us on the show and uh, look forward to doing it again very soon sir
3: Brad, thank you. Thank you very much.
2: You bet. Okay, quick break, and we are back with, hey, Desi Doyen is up. (laughs) Yes. It's the Green (laughs) News Report on a very, very hot week in these United States. That's straight ahead. Oh, and some good news, too. Yeah. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Okay, today's Green News report ends a little bit happier than, unfortunately, we have to start it. And there's a little bit more detail I want to give on uh, one of the stories. Uh, This heat wave that is now buckling uh, much of the U.S. Dozens of daily heat records shattered on Monday. Highs soared into the 90s, hit triple digits across cities in the western part of the country, all the way north to the Canadian border. Denver hit 101 in Denver. Wow. Wow. And Montana's capital, usually pretty cool up there. Uh (laughs) Montana, yeah. Reached a sizzling 104 degrees. Wow. Records in Salt Lake City and Billings, Montana were broken by five degrees or more, which normally, when you break a record, it's you know one or two degrees. So the fact that these records were just smashed by these large margins, according to NBC, speaks to the intensity of the heat that's now baking that part of the country. And they say there's not much relief in sight. Extreme heat across the West will only intensify, become more widespread through the rest of the week. And they note that about 200 million people are now projected to experience temperatures higher than 90 degrees over the next seven days. 40 million of us over 100 degrees Because yes, though they don't know it, I will, this is what global warming looks like. This is what we have been warning about for a very long time, and this, unfortunately, is just the beginning. More than 50 million Americans were under heat warnings and watches on Tuesday. Uh, Triple digits coupled with bone-dry humidity will cook the West throughout the rest of the week. Highs could skyrocket up to 30 degrees above average in some spots, and nearly 200 new daily record highs are possible by the end of the week. There is also concern in states like California and, yes, Texas, where they are urging residents to conserve power in response to the heat wave to avoid rolling blackouts Um, could see uh, temperatures all-time highs, up to 125, 127 degrees in the desert southwest. But of particular concern is Texas, given their hottest days of the year, are yet to come. It usually doesn't get this hot until August, Desi Doyen, in your old home Lone Star State.
0: Yes, I know. And it's it's really disturbing because as a kid, you know, we would never hit even 100 degrees before August. In fact, it used to be a contest on the radio stations locally. Hey, when's it going to hit 100 degrees? Now it hits it in, you know, sometimes April, sometimes May.
2: And, I, you know, the fact that uh, uh, Texas just went through this uh, winter storm Yes. that knocked out their elect their electric system because they don't require it to be uh, winterproof, essentially Weatherized Weatherized to, co-
0: to, to withstand all kinds of extreme weather Because you remember that a power plant can be tripped off when it's too hot Because of the heat
2: Nuclear facilities because c- have to shut down Because the water that they cool it with from the rivers and streams and so forth Gets too hot to use to cool down the nuclear plant Yeah,
0: that's, that's kind of a problem with nuclear plants
2: So I'm assuming that in Texas, where they are not uh, winterized They're probably not much better summarized so
0: to speak, uh, in Texas. No, and the Texas state legislature closed its session without doing much on behalf of the actual people who live and work in Texas to ensure that they can afford these astronomical power bills and also to prevent blackouts because the Texas grid, as we all know is not connected to the rest of the United States, Mm. where neighboring states could help with that. So
2: if it goes out, they're out of luck. Yeah. Good luck, Texas. You know, all of this irritates the hell out of me. Uh, You know, I'm sure the folks on Fox News, they're not even talking about... uh, I'm sure they're not calling climate change a hoax today. Uh, or, you know, this is one of those days they just ignore the issues and wait for the snow to fall in winter so they can declare there's no such thing as global warming. Right. Hoping that their duped, brainwashed audiences won't remember. Luckily, our audiences are neither duped nor brainwashed, so we give them the real news. In our latest Green News Report.
0: There's so much that they want to do together, from security, NATO,
1: to climate change. It's a breath of fresh air.
0: G7 summit ends with pledges for climate action, few concrete details.
1: It was almost as hot in Montana today as it was in New Mexico.
0: Early season heat wave breaks records, spikes wildfires, disturbing mystery at Chinese nuclear plant. Plus, like the Keystone XL pipeline, Alaska's pebble mine is truly dead.
2: Good. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. One of the things some of my colleagues said to me when I was there was, well, the United States leadership recognizes there is global warming. Um,
3: and I know that sounds silly, but uh, you know we had a president last who, who uh, basically said it's not a problem, with global warming. Well,
2: it wasn't a problem for him. It is the existential problem
4: facing humanity.
2: You're assuming he was human, sir. This is your green news report. Okay, Desi Doyne, it was the first G7 meeting for our new president. That means things get back to normal. That means mm, not enough happens, but in a friendly way.
0: <laughs> That's actually a pretty good assessment. Thank you. At the G7 meeting over the weekend in England, President Joe Biden repaired relationships with U.S. allies who welcomed the shift from the Trump administration. On climate change, the world's seven largest economies, not including China, agreed to some new goals and actions, but it was less than environmental groups hoped for. The leaders agreed to phase out the burning of coal for electricity, but did not set a firm date for doing so. They did Commit to stop international financing for coal projects by the end of this year. Good. Except for projects that use emerging expensive carbon capture and storage technology Mm. to cut their emissions. Okay. G7 leaders pledged to conserve or protect at least 30% of their lands and oceans by 2030. And in a first, all seven nations promised to cut their emissions in half by 2030, the first time that the major industrialized countries that are most responsible for historical emissions collectively committed to doing so
2: cool now let's see them do it
0: environmental groups criticized the lack of concrete details and the failure to finally deliver on a pledge to mobilize 100 billion dollars a year for a green climate fund to help developing countries shift to clean energy and adapt to the intensifying catastrophes caused by climate change that they did not themselves cause climate scientist dr michael mann on cnn international explained why this is critical to to meet Paris agreement climate goals the
3: devil is in the details because in order to help you know de- the developing world leapfrog past the fossil fuel stage we need to make it easy for them to do that we need to provide them the resources so that they can meet the needs of their people while not engaging in behavior that continues to damage our environment.
0: In China, as we go to air, U.S. officials are monitoring reports of a potential leak at a Chinese nuclear power plant. On Monday, French nuclear company EDF, which co-owns the advanced nuclear plant with the Chinese government, confirmed it had deliberately released gases from the plant in an attempt to fix, quote, a performance issue. Mm -hmm. CNN reports that previously EDF had warned U.S. officials that the Chinese nuclear safety authority had raised legal limits for allowable radiation releases. U.S. officials reportedly do not think the leak is at a crisis level, but they continue to monitor it closely.
2: Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine.
0: Here in the U.S., 43 million Americans are under an extreme heat advisory in the West. Sizzling temperatures 15 to 30 degrees above normal in some areas are breaking new records and further drying out already desiccated vegetation and soils. Evacuations are underway due to intense wildfires spreading in parts of Utah, California, and Arizona. The city of Phoenix, Arizona, is set to hit 116 degrees Fahrenheit this week. The city has never before reached that temperature this early in the calendar year. I'm
2: sure it'll all be fine.
0: And the hottest months of summer are still to come. And this is all on top of the most widespread drought in 20 years. According to the federal U.S. drought monitor, nearly 30% of the West is in exceptional drought, the highest category. The previous record was just 11%. But some good news in Alaska. The Biden administration has announced it will reinstate the roadless rule for the Tongass National Forest One of the world's largest remaining intact temperate rainforests that the Trump administration had abruptly stripped of protections on its way out the door, trying to allow roads, logging and other development. Finally, also in Alaska, the massive, controversial, proposed pebble mine above Bristol Bay, fought by Native American tribes and environmental groups for more than a decade because it would decimate the world's most prolific salmon fishery, that mine is truly, finally dead. (laughs) An Alaskan Native Corporation near Bristol Bay has voted to ban development on land that was necessary for a road that would have been required for the pebble mine project.
2: All I'll say is this. Elections matter. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad
0: Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And
2: this has been your Green News Report. I'll tell you what, if you live in Alaska right now, you either love Joe Biden, or you really hate him. Yeah. He's uh, shut down the drilling in Anwar. He has uh, ended the pebble mine. Well,
0: now, he didn't end pebble mine, but he did He, he did suspend drilling in many of the Arctic uh, wildlife areas. Who so. ended
2: the pebble mine?
0: That would have been an Alaska native corporation, which actually has a, a lot of uh, mm-hmm. pull on how their lands are used in Alaska. Oh, I'm
2: sure they're blaming uh, Biden for that anyway. Don't <laughs> you probably worry. They uh, And, of course, ending the roadless research Restoring the roadless rule in the Tongass National Forest. Yes,
0: all very important. The Tongass National Forest actually uh, sequesters more carbon than all of the lower 48 forests combined. So I say
2: let's save it. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Thanks, of course, as well to my guest, John Bonifaz of freespeechforpeople.org. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. That is made possible only by listeners like you who stop by Bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for that. You can drop me email <laughs> if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. I will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
0: So